2: Hello, Vas here with this week's How To Academy podcast. Our guest is Professor Anthony David, cognitive neuropsychiatrist and director of University College London's Institute of Mental Health. He's the author of the memoir, Into the Abyss, a neuropsychiatrist's take on troubled minds. Anthony shared his insights into mental health during the pandemic with Matthew Stadlin.
0: A very warm welcome, well a very hot welcome. I don't think I've ever quite been this hot in my life. It's about 33 degrees here in London and it's 6.30. But anyway, a very warm welcome to this How To Academy event. My name is Matt staddon and I'm a presenter on LBC. I'm delighted to be with you this evening. Thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Lots of people, I think, staycating in Britain at the moment. London seems to have emptied. I've got my window wide open because there's no air conditioning in England. And so if you get strange noises, I can only apologise. I'm thrilled to introduce to you Professor Anthony David. He's the director of the Institute of Mental Health at UCL, University College London. And he's formerly the head of psychiatry at the very well-known Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London Maudsley Hospital. We're going to be talking about mental health, of course. We're going to be talking about the impact of COVID-19, of coronavirus, but we'll also go Wider than that, as well. There's so much to get through. So, welcome, Anthony. May I begin just by asking you to to do something that for some will seem overly simple, but for others I hope will be helpful? And that is just to tell us exactly what a, a neuropsychiatrist is, and perhaps to distinguish between a neuropsychiatrist and a plain old psychiatrist, and then again to distinguish briefly between a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and also psychotherapists and so forth, an analyst. There are so many different forms of help that we can seek out. And I just want everybody to be absolutely clear of the goalposts before we begin.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a very common question to be asked. And I have a facetious answer to some of it, which is the, the question about what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist is usually about £20,000 a year. <laughs> but that's perhaps not very helpful. A neuropsychiatrist, it's it's a specialty within psychiatry. And what we're interested in and where we work is that interface between neurology, diseases of the nervous system, and psychiatry. So it's people who have neurological conditions, strokes, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, brain injury, and the mental health effects that that has, as well as people with psychological or psychiatric problems that look as though they may well be a neurological problem, but then turns out to be more complicated. So there's psychiatrists who are often found working in the general hospital, particularly on the neurology wards, as well as in their own territory. As to all those other branches of health professions. So the psychologists uh, don't have a medical, degree or medical training. Uh, But certainly in the UK clinical psychologists are all incredibly highly trained and skilled. Because they don't have the medical training, they have a slightly different emphasis and uh, approach. In this country they can't prescribe medication, so that gets, that's more the realm of the psychiatrist. But they're very academic and often Uh, proud of being evidence-based and scientific. Psychoanalysts or psychoanalysis is more a form of talking therapy derived from uh, Sigmund Freud and all his followers. And it isn't primarily a treatment, although it may be. It's also, I think, part of a person's journey to understand themselves as well. Although, again, the overlaps with other psychological treatments are are there for all to see. Uh, So I can't remember whether I've missed anyone, but... uh,
0: The plain old psychotherapist, I suppose.
1: So a psychotherapist is someone who's doing uh, talking therapies for people with mental health problems, and they may use a variety of different techniques, some derived from psychoanalysis, uh, but others much more mechanistic in terms of modern theories about thinking and emotions or they may they may adhere to another sort of school and certainly the treatments tend to be focused number of sessions say 12 or more rather than going over many years and you know sometimes very frequently in a week and or going over many years
0: am i right that there's broadly speaking a distinction between psycho or or psychiatrists in the UK and psychiatrists in America. America. So if you were to have mental health issues without the sort of physical conditions that you might associate with a a physical trauma and the consequences thereof, then in the UK you wouldn't typically go and see a psychiatrist again and again and again. again, They may prescribe you with drugs and, and that would, broadly speaking, be the end of it. Whereas in America, you might go and seek talking therapy with your psychiatrist, is that roughly
1: right? Well, I, I don't think that is quite right. I think this, a psychi- psychiatrists are very broadly trained and have liked to use a diff- the different options that are available. So some psychotherapists are psychiatrists. They just choose to work more with talking therapies. And in, in fact, any psychiatrist I think worth their salt should be reasonably comfortable with medications, and working in the general hospital, but they should also be comfortable with talking therapies and with social therapies and rehabilitation. And in a way, that's kind of one of my things is about this so-called biopsychosocial approach, which I think uh, all psychiatrists have in common. The difference is how we emphasize one of those elements, which might be because of where we work or the sort of people we see but I think also, all good psychiatry has got at least a bit of the biological, the psychological and the social in what it does.
0: What I didn't say in my introduction is that you've written a book called Into the Abyss. and I want to talk to you about that as well. But first to pick up on one of the words you just used, biological. In the sessions, that I, early sessions that I had with my psychologist about a decade ago, she immediately got me onto her side. It wasn't very hard work because I was suffering from acute anxiety and I said, I need your help and I'm not going to play games with you or compete with you, I just want your help. But one of the things that got me to trust her was that she explained mental health in very physical, biological terms. And I think there's this sort of artificial distinction and, and we work hard in the media, some of us, mm. to dispel this distinction between mental and physical health. But of course, the brain is an organ, it's part of your physical health. And could you just elaborate a bit on on that and help us better to understand the fact that your mental health and your physical health are really one and the same thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is really a crucial question. We've sort of got to the nub of it uh, right away. and. Um, I think you know, philosophers have struggled with what you know, they would call the mind-body or the mind-brain problem. How is it that our experience of mental life, as William James put it, of, of our beliefs, our fantasies, our desires, is all coming from this sort of blob of stuff that's very physical, it's inside our skulls, you know, and you can have a look at it. And it doesn't look like it could do all of that. But it obviously, well, most people believe it does. And that's certainly my sort of philosophical position. It's a materialist position. But we've still got to take into account our experience because it doesn't feel like that. And also we've got to take into account that we're not solitary beings where we live in a complicated social world uh, and we share culture and we share beliefs with other people. So that too has got to be taken into account. But there are advantages of at least being open to biological frameworks, or at least to seeing, well, what's happening to me has a biological uh, component. And that is, well, it, uh, it means that you're part of the whole uh, advance of science and medicine. So what, one of the important things about psychiatry being, part, being medically trained and being psychiatrists being doctors is that we're, we're sort of hitched along with that juggernaut of progress of learning about uh, genes and about metabolism and about biochemistry. And just in the way that the way we treat cancer nowadays compared to even you know, 10 or 15 years ago has been transformed. Why shouldn't that be the same for mental health? I mean, it also helps some people, depending on the circumstances, find a way of not blaming themselves for what's happening to them. You wouldn't blame yourself uh, if you developed cancer or if you broke a leg or an arm. Uh, so why should you that you're going through anxiety? So it can be a great leveler in the best sense of the word. Um, and, and that's useful. The fact that there are, if there are biological components or basis for the way we feel, there may be biological treatments that can help reverse a problem or attenuate a problem, that is also all to the good. I think what people dislike is where we put one frame of reference way above all the others, rather than seeing them as shared and interacting
0: we'll come to the biological or physiological explanations for anxiety, for example, and and depression as well. But because mental health is such a spectrum, how do we know when we should be sort of bucking up, as it were, stiff upper lip, which, Mm. which are phrases from old England before we got to grips with mental health? How do we know? There's still scope for a bit of that, I imagine, in our lives. So how do we know when that's what we should be doing And then conversely, when actually what we should be doing is seeking professional help.
2: Mm,
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, Not an easy one to answer. And it's certainly a, a challenge for mental health, but it's not unique to mental health either. I mean, let me give you an analogy. So high blood pressure. We know that the higher your blood pressure, the more likely you are to suffer a stroke or a heart attack. But there's no point in the measurement of blood pressure where it becomes, you know, you suddenly go from normal to abnormal. It depends. You could say, well, the, the, the greater the blood pressure, the worse. That's true. The worse your depression, the worse your depression. But there isn't a, a clear cutoff. And it may be that the sort of high blood pressure you have is best controlled by a change in your lifestyle or your diet, or it may be due to some underlying physiological problem that needs to be corrected with medication so there isn't a very clear answer and certainly the idea that individual resources can't be used to get over adversity you know that would be a terrible situation you know what would life be like if if we weren't able to call on those resources and again calling on other people and their resources, sharing resources with other people. That's very important. But the message that you give can be quite tricky. So if you, if, if you were to be told by your therapist or whatever, just uh, buck yourself up, get over it,
0: I, I, I suspect that's not going to do go down very well and it's not going to be very helpful. So help us then to understand anxiety a little bit better, physiologically, if, if you would. And as I said, when I was, had this explained to me, it was, I found it reassuring because it, it, meant, it's, it said to me, something's gone slightly wrong physically, you're, you're malfunctioning, but we can fix it.
1: Well, like a lot of mental health problems, and in fact, the same is true of medical problems, you can understand them by tracing them back to what's happening in the so-called normal or healthy situation. So instead of talking about anxiety, we talk about fear. Fear is a deeply rooted emotion we share with uh, other animals, other species. We have it from the very earliest infancy throughout our lives. It's there for a purpose. It's to guide our behavior. It's to tell us where there's danger. It's to tell us we should be withdrawing, you know, fight or flight. Uh, That all comes down to that same system that's to do with uh, fear. When we start to fear ideas and thoughts and beliefs, we start to talk about anxiety, but it's the, same, it's the same thing. If we had a life without fear, it might seem like a great idea, but it would be hopeless. We wouldn't survive as a species because we, we'd get into all sorts of silly scrapes and we wouldn't learn from them. Uh, so anxiety is there for a reason. It's a warning system. And you can see how that the calibration of that warning system is rather delicate and can easily go awry. And if we're having to face a a lot of threat, so threat, fear, leads to fear, leads to anxiety, our system for producing anxiety might be slightly hyped up and primed. And we find that even when the threats and the fears have subsided, we're still in that state of fear. And I think that's one way of of trying to imagine what it's like to have anxiety and because anxiety and these fears are very deep rooted in our physiology there's a physiological response to that which is part of this um, as i mentioned fight or flight uh system that uh, is powered by adrenaline and uh, stress hormones it makes our hearts beat it makes our pulses race it makes us alert attentive but perhaps alert to only things that are threatening and less alert to reassuring things. So again, if that's slightly uncalibrated, we're feeling on edge physically, mentally we're feeling under threat the whole time, and that is exhausting. And I think that's what it's like to have an anxiety disorder. If you're feeling anxious and you think you're about to have a heart attack at any moment, or that your mind's about to explode, having a, a physiological explanation that yes, this is your body's responding to a threat, but perhaps overresponding. You're not about to have a heart attack. You will habituate to those feelings just given time. I think that in itself, just that explanation is really a very important first step.
0: One of the words that resonated with me in that answer was exhausting. Sometimes mm. the anxious thoughts flood in. So, quick, so fast, and so thick as well, that it is exhausting. And also mm-hmm. there are times when I f- almost forget what I'm supposed to be worried about, because I'm worried about so many different things. And yes. that exhaustion can sometimes lead in me, and I don't know whether I am miss self-diagnosing here, but to something almost akin to what I imagine depression might feel like. I don't really have much experience with depression. So can you explain and I'm sure there are various different forms of depression and mm. different intensities of course. But could you explain briefly, as you just did there with anxiety, what's going on physiologically, broadly speaking, with depression? Mm. Well, first of all, there's a lot of overlap between anxiety
1: and depression. They often go hand in hand. And it's a bit of an artificial uh, separation that I, I think psychiatrists are perhaps guilty of making. But it is, it is a sort of convenience. Uh, but depression, low mood again, we can all sort of understand roughly what that 's about, and instead of thinking of it as a, as a natural response to threat or fear, perhaps we should think of it as the natural response to loss or anticipated loss uh, again that 's part of life we 're all you know we have to deal with that, but sometimes it 's just too overwhelming and our response to loss is often to withdraw. And again, this has a, the effect, the idea that it's about recuperating and rebuilding strength and overcoming loss that may be just a matter of time. So that's the sort of kernel underneath depression. Now, obviously, when depression gets out of hand, time hasn't healed that uh, the loss doesn't seem to be, the person isn't getting used to it. And again, all sorts of physiological changes happen as well. Part of that withdrawal, not eating, uh, not engaging with other people, lacking motivation. The trouble in, in clinical depression, if you like, is those compensatory mechanisms, they become the problem in itself, and it becomes a vicious circle. I can't overcome this sense of loss or foreboding and I've withdrawn from my loved ones. So I'm not getting anything that's going to pull me out of it. I'm not not motivated in a way to seek out experiences that will in some way pull me out of this depth of depression. So I think a lot of the treatment of depression is, is saying, look, whatever it is, you're here now, we've got to try and overcome some of those things, even though you don't feel like meeting people or talking to people. That's the only way that you're going to reconnect with yourself and with others. And, and again, we know that there are physiological brain changes that accompany depression. And uh, antidepressant medication can alleviate those. Now, I wouldn't, I'm not suggesting that that's a panacea. And I'm not suggesting that you know, antidepressants um, are kind of like a vitamin replacement Often they were discovered purely by accident. Uh, There were drugs for treating other conditions and people noticed the mood improved. But, you know, 50 years after that, there's been enough clinical trials to know that there are medications that are generally very safe that can help people to get over depression.
0: Yes. It's interesting because in in your book, as I said, in in Into the Abyss, you draw on your experience with a whole range of human beings over so your years as a psychiatrist or a neuropsychiatrist. And in the first chapter you meet someone called Jennifer and you talk about dopamine. Mm-hmm. Tell us about dopamine, but, but both in its, its natural form in our bodies and the role it plays and also as part of a cure. So the brain is comprised of
1: millions and billions of nerve cells, neurons, and they connect to each other And if you think of each neuron connects to several other neurons, which in turn connect to several other neurons, you can see how very quickly you get complexity. But what's interesting about the way the nervous system works is that the brain cells communicate with other brain cells through chemical transmitters. So a little bit of a chemical is released from one neuron, that goes to the next neuron, which induces the change in that neuron. And one of those neurotransmitters is dopamine. Now what dopamine does in, in the healthy brain, it has lots of different actions. In a way, it's, it's very important about how we learn just l- new information, learn from experience. Dopamine is important about that. Dopamine is one of the brain chemicals that powers motivation. And it's also, and that's, it's linked, is it controls movements. Uh, And how do we know that? We've learned a lot about dopamine by what happens with Parkinson's disease. So although Parkinson's disease is primarily a brain neurodegenerative disorder that affects lots of different brain regions eventually and brain chemicals, at the beginning, it targets these cells that produce dopamine. And what the first symptoms of Parkinson's disease are is this lack of control over movement, the slowing of movement, and a problem with dampening oscillations in movement. And that's what produces the tremor that people will recognize in a person with Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease starts off as a motor, a movement problem, but then it also becomes a mental problem. So there's a mental slowing that is analogous to the physical slowing. And uh, it was discovered not that long ago that you could replace dopamine with a pill, and it revolutionized uh, neurology. So dopamine replacement can stave off the effects of Parkinson's disease for a decade or even more.
0: I want to understand, if I may, where you stand, Professor, Mm. on, on prescribing drugs, because you've already said that they're not a panacea. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly a very, very controversial area. And I suppose in America, it's particularly controversial because of the links, some would allege, between doctors, psychiatrists, and big pharma, and also because of the spillover or the connection between prescribed drugs and illegal drugs. And there's a massive heroin problem, just for example, you know, in the States. So how do we get that right here? How do we not make the same mistakes that they've made over there? And do you personally tend to have a bias towards talking therapy or medication? Well, I'd like to think I don't
1: have a bias, but we'd all like to think that, wouldn't we? No, I'd like to think that, well, at least I do think carefully about when medication is required, likely to be effective, and when different kinds of therapies, social therapies or talking therapies are, are important. Although I should say that in most of the conditions that I see, which tend to be at the severer end of the spectrum, it's a combination of all of them and not, none on their own is often sufficient and all together are more than you know, the sum of the parts. So I don't think it's an either or. But there are pitfalls, uh, all treatments, Talking therapies and medication have side effects, so there's always that balance of uh, adverse effects and wanted effects. There is something a little bit too simple, perhaps, about giving a pill, and I think it—it's it, there is a there is a, a trap that once we've given a pill, perhaps our our job is done, and. Uh, because human beings and mental health is much more complicated than that, that that's usually a mistake. So a pill as a substitute for deeper understanding, I'm very much against, but why not use all of that incredible scientific knowledge and technology? And if you think about addictions, we know how powerful drugs are out there. uh, The drugs of addiction, and we know how powerful they are in, in terrible, Uh, excesses. Uh, But that's also a reminder about how potentially powerful they are for good. I mean, you mentioned heroin. Where would hospitals be without the pain-killing properties of opiate drugs like heroin, diamorphine to give it the proper name? You know, hospitals, anesthetics, operations couldn't function without it. And yet the problem on the streets is really desperate. So it's a reminder of the power for good and for bad that uh, these approaches can have.
0: I want to move towards the response to COVID and the different problems that it's mm-hmm. thrown up. But as a sort of bridge to that, in the book you work with some people who've gone through really very, very serious physical accidents, physical traumas, to use mm-hmm. the word that I used earlier on in our conversation. What can be the impact of brain injury on mental mm-hmm. health?
1: Well, potentially huge, of course. And there are catastrophic brain injuries that uh, people can have through lack of oxygen or car accidents, stroke. But we've also, we've also learned over the years. I mean, in fact, again, it's, it's, it's interesting how disease and pathology teaches about healthy organs and healthy people. So one thing is about brain injury uh, from accidents or traumas and strokes is sometimes it's just one particular part of the brain that has been damaged. And then we see how does that affect the person? What What's lost? And that helps us map on that part of the brain or that system of the brain must be something to do with that function that's lost. And so we build up a picture of how the, the healthy brain works. And, and what I think we're also learning Perhaps a bit belatedly, it used to be thought that the brain, once it's damaged, it never, never heals or recovers, unlike, you know, the skin. Uh, But that seems to be uh, an oversimplification. And the brain can, to some extent, rewire itself. Physically, it can grow and reform some of those connections that are lost, often not quite to the same extent. And similarly, because the brain is so rich and complex, other parts of the brain can sometimes take over the damage bit. It, it, it's not, it's not ideal. It's, it's like, you know, doing something with your left hand if you're right-handed, but it's certainly uh, much better than not being able to use a hand. So we see that in the higher up mental effects of brain injury, not just the paralysis or the, the loss of sensation or the loss of speech, but there are loss of mental functions including the ability to decide what's real and what's unreal. Uh, the ability to know that what I'm perceiving is coming through my senses as opposed to my mind playing tricks on me. So that's where the psychiatrist comes in to this area of, of brain injury and brain damage, which is, you know, very, very fascinating area.
0: That does then take us to COVID. In, in, in May, you wrote a piece in The Guardian, of course, mm-hmm. More perhaps think we know more about the disease now than we did there a couple of months on. Could, can we talk about the effect of that disease on our immediate, on the immediate physical health of the brain? And I'm I'm going to make my part for myself by trying to distinguish between the immediate physical impact on the brain and then the mental health implications. If I can separate them out, yeah, like that, even though of course mental health, as we've established, is this physical but could you tell us in the first instance what's going on with covid when it does affect the brain if, if that's what's going if, if that's indeed what's happening?
1: yeah i mean it, it just shows you when you start to try and separate the brain and the mind and the mental and the physical you get into you tie yourself in knots and so we've got to try and not do that but it's it's hard i, I mean what we, we i think we are learning so much about this condition that obviously it's And I'm not an expert in virology or infections. Uh, I'm having to sort of learn as as I go along, as as many others are. Uh, But clearly this is a condition that primarily affects the lungs, but very soon can spread in the severe cases to any other organ in the body. But simply affecting the lungs because of what they do for the rest of the body, you could say, well, what's the point of the lungs? And you could say the, the point of the lungs is to provide oxygen for the brain because the brain is the most, our most important organ. Woody Allen said it was our second most important organ, but I think it's probably our most important. So if the, if the lungs aren't providing enough oxygen for the brain, the brain is going to be struggling and suboptimal. And if uh, the other systems in the body that are keeping our temperature at 37 degrees, that we're struggling with at the moment to keep our temperatures down uh, and working very hard. If that system fails, we start to become delirious. And that means, again, our perceptions start to play tricks with us. We can't sustain a level of attention. So people with COVID, where it's just, as it were, only in the lungs – will start to have mental effects. And this has you know, been now quite well described. The the fatigue, the delirium, the confusion. Uh, and so that's, that's happening straight away. But there is also the spread to other organs. And it seems that it might not be the actual virus that is spreading into the liver or the heart, but it is about our immune response to the virus that is trying too hard to get rid of this virus, which has this way of hiding, of disguising itself by hiding within our cells. So it's provoking a massive counterattack from our immune system, which by mistake ends up attacking itself. So parts of the brain, uh, of the surface membranes of some brain cells, sort of look a little bit like the virus and get attacked by mistake. So we do get these cases of inflammation in the brain, encephalitis, that seems to be one of the complications of COVID. It doesn't seem like that happens very often. We don't really know how often it happens. It's probably 1% or less than 1%, but it's enough to be producing very new uh, neurological conditions where parts of the brain are inflamed and damaged, um, and that's going to that's going to really keep us employed for you know years to come.
0: Talk to us then about the psychological responses that right. we have to a serious illness or injury.
1: Yeah, I mean, so then you've got the response to a serious threat, uh, possibly a fatal disease, but it could be anything. In a way, it, it's probably is is our response to having covid different from being told we're suffering from cancer or some other condition in many ways no but in some ways yes there's there's an added uncertainty when you see around you getting through the media people the mortality rates the death rate that we hear every day today another so many people died and that and the total is i mean that's those are very frightening kinds of statistics. And so I think that adds to the, 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 the anxiety and fear that someone having COVID. I mean, I, I had a quite a mild dose of, of COVID myself. And it was frightening to think, am I going to be one of these people who just recovers? Or am I going to go to bed and then wake up gasping in the middle of the night being taken to an ambulance to the hospital? no no one we still don't know why some people go one way and some go the other for i was in the fortunate group so i think that is adding to a lot of fear and then there's there's the recovery where people feel well i'm over the worst i can breathe i'm not coughing my temperature's down but i don't feel quite right and whether that's a legacy of as it were psychologically being pulled through the ringer or whether it is this some aftermath of this immune response, uh, that is going to be a really difficult one to untangle. And as we said right at the beginning, it may, it may be a fool's errand to even try and untangle it. Just let's accept it's probably a bit of both.
0: There are now increasingly well-documented cases and numerous ones of so-called long-tail COVID sufferers. Yeah. Now that in itself, having a chronic condition, even if it 's the aftermath or the the, the immune response, the, the immune system acting up as it were, which I think it 's believed to be, but i 'm no virologist of course having a chronic condition is very difficult for people and it 's difficult not just because it can be physically demanding and debilitating and undermining mm. psychologically as well as physically, again that distinction artificial. yes, but also because friends relatives don 't necessarily know how to. Cope with someone who is suffering in a chronic way, whether with their physical or mental health
1: yeah we have to have a very open mind about about this because we're literally this is a literally uncharted territory, so we really don 't know but it is interesting to to draw on as it were ordinary mental health because one of the problems for someone who's suffering from Common or garden anxiety or depression, if I can, you know, call it that, as opposed to anxiety and depression that follows a physical illness, is exactly that what you say? That it's not visible to other people. We might look perfectly okay, and in fact, we might be ninety percent okay. So the reaction of other people can be very. Uh, we're very sensitive to that. And again, people might be well-meaning and say, no, you'll be fine. Just, you know, you you got to do more exercise or, or you know, you're, you're dwelling on the past. Um, and that, as we said right at the beginning, might be helpful for some people. It might be very unhelpful. But it's this invisibility that we, we take for granted in mental conditions, but it can also affect others. One of the distinctions is that the mental health attracts a kind of a stigma that physical health doesn't. So if I seem okay and yet I'm just not quite so motivated and can't really get back to work because of my mental health, somehow that doesn't engender the same sympathy. Uh, somehow it's seen as a bit of a moral weakness. Whereas if it's due to The lingering effects of a virus in my body, or the inflammatory system still hasn't quite calmed down. Somehow, that absolves me from any responsibility. So I, you know, which one do I want to be? Which camp do I want to be in? I don't want to be in the stigmatized camp, and so that sometimes makes my own view a little bit it it taints it, it distorts my view to seeing the mental as not real, as stigmatized, as undesirable. And it's, I'm, I'm trying to fit in with a society that hasn't really caught up with our contemporary understanding, still stigmatises mental
0: health. Well, society, of course, only has a certain amount of energy. So it would be mm-hmm. quite challenging for wider society to target that energy relentlessly on, on people who do suffer with chronic issues, whether they be physical or, or mental. One of the particularly pernicious elements that, that I think some of these long-term COVID sufferers seem to be facing is when they are dismissed as being anxious. When, in, in, in fact, it seems there are real physical conditions going on. Absolutely, and 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 I agree with
1: that. But again, why would you dismiss someone for being anxious? You know, you you yourself talked about how you suffer from anxiety disorder. That seemed to me just as frightening and as horrible as someone suffering from pneumonia. And I wouldn't dismiss someone suffering from pneumonia. Why would I dismiss someone suffering from anxiety? And yet that is the kind of language that we end up using. And, and, and you're right, the sort of stigma is very, it's very pernicious and it sort of feeds into all of our conversations without us really knowing it. And we've got to be alert it's a, this, the attention span of society is the problem, isn't it? I think you called it energy. But people don't like complexity. People don't like, well, we, we don't know, is it physical or is it mental? Maybe that's not a useful distinction. Some people say, oh, you, know, give me, you know, just give me the facts, don't waffle. But maybe, you know, in areas of uncertainty, we've got to tolerate a bit of uncertainty and accept a bit of complexity and not rush to judgment.
0: Much earlier on in this conversation, you talked about how we react to loss, how we react to bereavement. So one of the legacies of this disease, and of course we're still in the middle of this pandemic, is that a lot of people have lost loved ones or friends. Mm. How do you understand bereavement in terms of mental health? Well,
1: and I mean, there's a uh, a chapter about this in, in my book in that, in a way, the if you, you know if, if you've never been depressed, you know wait and when you get a bereavement which is inevitable in life, then you'll, you'll have a taste of what it's like. Now it's not exactly the same. Bereavement isn't depression and, bere- and certainly bereavement isn't a clinical disorder that needs treatment that would be terrible. no it's a part of life but it gives us a bit of a window. Of what it's like to feel completely shattered, uh, to, to be, you know, unable to focus on uh, what we need to do next because of this sense of loss. So so it's a kind of salutary uh, warning that's definitely part of normal life and normal culture, uh, but it does give us a taste of what it's like. So imagine a bereavement that you just can't get, get over, as it were. Uh, that's a bit like depression. So, so, yes, people are being confronted with bereavements because of this pandemic. And one, and one interesting and, and very, you know, strikes me as really cruel and tragic elements is that when, when people do struggle to move on from bereavements, it's often thought that, well, they haven't really had a chance to grieve properly. Perhaps because, uh, you know, a person loses a parent, but they've still got their own children to worry about. So they don't have time. And then months later, it's sort of caught up on them. And a therapist might explore, well, maybe you didn't really grieve properly. Uh, And our culture has all of these mechanisms, some of them, you know, spiritual, some of them wacky and, you know, illogical. And yet we do have Systems for dealing with that and being unable to go through those rituals that are there to try and get us through bereavement because of the restrictions and social distancing. I think that is very cruel and I think that probably is going to have a bad effect.
0: Yeah, that that links into post traumatic stress, and it's it's such a sort of over, overused, some would say, phrase. Mm. It can now be it can now be applied to all sorts of different experiences. No doubt, in some cases, wrongly. Can you give us a little bit of, of an insight into what you, as a psychiatrist, mm. would include within the sphere of PTSD?
1: Yeah, I, I and I agree with your your first point that. It is an overused term, you know, uh, post-traumatic, I've got post-traumatic stress, the trauma of this. And I I just think that just before people use those terms, just think, is there another word for that? So if I've lost a loved one, I think bereavement is a good word to describe how I feel rather than I'm traumatized by it. I've got post-traumatic stress because it's a bit different. So let's, let's see if there are other words like tra- uh, bereaved or frightened or uh, or uh, despondent or humiliated or ashamed or, you know, other, other things. So post-traumatic stress disorder is a reaction to what's supposedly a, a quite unusual and extraordinary event. And I think it's primarily a problem in the way the memory uh, is contextualized, which then leads to um, anxiety. So um, the, the event won't go away, keeps coming back. We, 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 we have recurrent memories. Things trigger, to use another perhaps overused word, trigger the same memory that you end up reliving again and again. But psychologists will show that actually what you're reliving is not exactly what happened that day. It's some sort of amalgam of your fears of what happened, what you thought should happen, and just a whole mess. And part of the therapy is to try and actually extract what really did happen from your embellishments. But the inability to remember properly leads to an inability to, as it were, forget properly. And by, by that I mean, don't, not literally to forget, but to see that that event was in the past and I'm now living in the present. I don't want to forget it, but I don't want to be continually drawn back to the past. And that I think is the essence of post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Uh, just to continue this theme of a reaction, We've shone a collective spotlight on Boris Johnson, given he's the Prime Minister, and his reaction to his life-threatening illness. A little bit more, perhaps, on what people who have been hospitalised, who've gone through the experience of this disease, in it's most severe form, just short of death, what they can expect. Because I imagine that people can have very different reactions to that sort of life-changing illness. They won't all be manifest as, as PTSD or, 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 or as depression. Some, some might have quite an uplifting response.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that's very important not to lose sight of. People talk about that as um, post-traumatic growth. It's not all about post-traumatic stress. And the idea that you've come through something that you didn't think you could, that you were tested to the limit, that for a lot of people is transformational and it l- leads them to better things, greater things in their lives and things that they can share. So that is just as important. Post-traumatic stress disorder is not inevitable after uh, really a, a major stress. It happens sometimes, it's not always predictable why and who, it can happen to anyone, but it isn't inevitable. I think something about the hospital experience is interesting, because as I was saying, the minds of people who are suffering from COVID are muddled by the metabolic upset, the lack of oxygen, the fever, as well as perhaps this inflammatory response. So the memories of the events taking place are very muddled. And as we've said, that's a kind of, that's bad for being able to deal with memories in retrospect. So I think that's part of the reason why being in intensive care, does lead in a minority to people having PTSD because they've not you know the, the, their memories have been coming in and out and it's all a bit of a jumble and that's very bad for trying to make sense of it
0: an anonymous anonymous attendee on the Q&A is asking about the potential for the risk of, of low grade as they put it PTSD from the continued stress of covid-19 I just want to move to Christina's question because she says what about the impact as a society of what we have been through, regardless of whether we personally get COVID, is this not effectively a mass trauma that we're going through? Lockdown, seeing people with masks, not to be underestimated, not seeing loved ones, etc, etc. It's an important question. Yeah, very important.
1: But again, can you think of a word other than mass trauma? We're going through something together. It's a collective experience. For some people, it's terrible. For others, it's merely bad, but it is something collective. And I think what we've learned is that, um, and it is this unfortunate cliche of, well, we're all in it together, which has sort of been abused as a, as a very worthy phrase. But if you think about times of war, uh, and you know, people do draw that analogy. Uh, one of the interesting facts about war is that suicide rates fall very consistently during times of war. Now, that's not to say war's worth it. It's a good thing. But somehow that feeling that we are in something together, that collective response, even a, against a terrible threat or foe, can bring out the best in us. Uh, and doesn't necessarily lead us all damaged and impaired. I think most people are capable of going through this and coming out, if not stronger, at least not weakened. Of course, not everyone will. And what we know from psychiatry is that uh, social factors, deprivation, unemployment, uh, poor economy, is very, very bad for your mental health. Yes, viruses are too, and you know, not enough dopamine and drugs, they're bad, but the economy is very important in mental health. And that, in a way, is the biggest threat, I think. So we'll come through this pandemic, we'll have learned a lot about ourselves, hopefully we'll have pulled together, but when there are lots of people unemployed, when the fabric of society has been torn, I think we will start to see higher levels of depression and anxiety and so on. So in a way, that's to—that's what we've got to anticipate and be prepared
0: for. We haven't really talked about isolation in any great detail. Mm. But the effects of mm. lockdown on us individually, we know from anecdotal experience that people in relationships can find it quite tough, but people on their own can find it very tough as well I mean obvious isn't it so I've been on my own now for five or six months and I'm sure that's had a negative impact on my mental health whatever else has been going on with my mental or physical health but I just mm. wonder what the link is in the most explicit terms from you as a psychiatrist between being on your own spending too much time on your own much more time than you would be used to or that you would want to and mm. your mental health
1: well, it's obviously a very clear link. And, and it's interestingly, it's only quite recently that psychiatrists and psychologists have been become interested in loneliness. There's a, there's a group of researchers at UCL where that's their a big focus. And they're uncovering all sorts of interesting things. I mean, people with mental health problems are much more likely to feel lonely. And if you ask people who say they're lonely, they're much more likely to have mental health problems of a range. So there is a very close connection. But I think one of the ironies is that going into uh, this pandemic, what, would, what did people think was the biggest threat to mental health, especially in young people? It was social media. It was they're on their phones the whole time. They're not having proper relationships. Um, they're playing games. Whereas if it wasn't for our computers and our phones and a degree of connectivity, I mean, we really would be in trouble. So I think our ways round physical isolation. uh, You know, I think we've been very adaptable and sure. It's no substitute, but it is actually a way of staying connected that wasn't available to people in the Spanish flu pandemic, for example. So I think social distancing is a bad term. You know, obviously it's the physical distancing that's important for the pandemic, but the social proximity, the social connectedness is what keeps us healthy and alive, I think.
0: This anonymous attendee asked an important question as well. Anthony talked about his own fear of death going through corona, which Mm. I felt, this person says, the same when I was infected. Is there any helpful way of thinking when we have the virus so that we're not too fearful or stressed? That prompts the wider question, doesn't it? What impact can our mental health, have on our physical health talks about the impact that our physical health can have on our mental health but can we think ourselves into being well or indeed unwell gosh yeah there's a lot in that I think we can
1: think ourselves. yes both uh, I think our minds are so important and so powerful uh, they can help us get out of dead ends of thinking and you know thinking I'm gonna die is perhaps the worst dead end your mind can get into, especially if you're not quite there. And similarly, that's why we've got to be very careful about making predictions about there being, you know, somebody called it a tsunami of mental health problems, of post-traumatic stress. Sometimes those predictions can be a bit self-fulfilling in the way that they're not about, you know, that's something about psychological health that's a bit unique. And that's why when we talk about suicide, we've got to be very careful and we don't report the way people in the, in the public eye might've taken their own lives because we know some people will feel compelled to, to follow. So I think there are important lessons. I mean, I think there is a rational side to us even when we're, you know, overwhelmed with anxiety and depression and to think, to go through uh, what's likely and what's probable, and how our perceptions are perhaps being skewed. You know, when we're anxious, we think everything is going wrong and against us. And when we're depressed, we can't see a way out of it. I mean, cognitive behavior therapy is about, well, let's test some of those assumptions. Let's do some experiments. Let's look at the evidence. And it may seem like that's the last thing we want to do when we're in the middle of the crisis. It is incredibly helpful, and with a with a really skilled therapist who can you guide us out of the morass of irrational fears uh, and into thinking a little bit more objectively. I think that can get us out of those you know terrible fears that we're all prone to in the middle of the night sometimes.
0: It begs a further question, doesn't it? It's about this fascinating, and, and I suppose challenging dilemma that maybe we face that on the one hand we, we want to be kind to ourselves or may even be encouraged to be kind to ourselves to say look we have got a, an issue here we, we have got anxiety or we have got depression and on, on some level accept that at least recognize it but then at the same time we don't want to I- encourage a sort of over acceptance almost, an, almost a, a laziness or an indulgence, and. And, and, and that goes right back to almost where we started, doesn't it, a, a, about how we handle mental health and, and that, that moment at which we say we shouldn't just be fucking up here, we should be seeking help. There are, there are real tensions there in how we treat ourselves.
1: Yeah, and, and it's where we really need other people. I mean, to see ourselves as others see us, uh, as, as Robbie Burns said, you know, that's a gift. And there are times when we can't just see it for ourselves. We can't get that balance right. And I think that's, I think, going back to your previous question, in a way that's what we most need from other people is to be able to reflect back at us where we are, who we should be, whether we're worrying unnecessarily or whether we're in denial and pretending things are fine when they really aren't. So I I think... You know, that's, in a way, the cost of being alone, of isolation, that perhaps hasn't really been explored enough.
0: just want to squeeze in a couple more questions. One of the chapters in your book is entitled You Are What You Eat, and, and what, there's a question here about nutrition. Mm. Given your emphasis on, on us as biological, physiological beings, as a psychiatrist, what do, we, what do you understand, in, in, in very simple terms, About the relationship between what we put into our bodies not drugs but but food and 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 drink and our mental health
1: well um yeah i mean that the the chapter is called you are what you eat and i reflected on you know isn't that a stupid expression really we're not what we eat you know that's why we have a digestive system Uh, and yet it does seem so symbolically powerful that what we put in our mouths is really going to influence our bodies, uh, rather than just filling up the tank with petrol. But it is because we're not just simple organisms, that we imbue everything with meaning, and our culture around food is so important, more so than you know the, the fats and the proteins and the carbohydrates. Where it comes into mental health is, if we don't get the right nutrition that affects our physical and mental functioning. And, you know, some vitamins, if we don't have the right amount of, will become mad or delirious or psychotic or demented. But usually it's a question of what our bodies are like. And we we make the connection between our bodies, the shape of our bodies and the size of our bodies with what we eat, which, of course, that is a genuine connection. But the problem with nutrition is more to do with, how we accept our bodies and what they can do and what they can't do and try and go against nature to make our bodies look better as we imagine. Uh, I think that's where mental health comes in, where there's that tension between you know, how we'd like to see our bodies and how I, it is actually in the
0: physical world. Yet, yet another tension in the mental health sphere is in the criminal world at what point criminality stops and starts according to what state of mental health we are in or, in or indeed the degree of criminality that is ascribed to us according to what mental state we're in can you say something just ever so briefly about that
1: well again it, it ties into the sort of moral dimension to mental health that most physical health doesn't have to deal with so we, are we doing something because we're mad because we're crazy, we don't know what we're doing? Or are we doing something because we're bad? We want things that society doesn't really think are eligible. So that is a tension in psychiatry. And of course, there's the insanity defense that people can be said to be not in their right mind and therefore not responsible. But would we want, would we want a lot of people to feel they're not really responsible for what they do? Because the feeling of res- responsibility d- does constrain us and make us live more harmoniously as communities. It's a really tough philosophical dilemma, but it's why psychiatry is more interesting to me than, say, cardiology, because they don't have to worry about morals and ethics, uh, whereas we do, unfortunately.
0: The ultimate question, and it is a COVID question, it's from QA. We have touched on long tail COVID, but. Joyce says, please, can you cover long-tail COVID? I've been suffering since early March and still getting waves. I and mean, it is a very difficult thing for people to cope with psychologically as well as physically, one well, imagines. The word unprecedented
1: comes up a lot, doesn't it? Almost nothing is unprecedented, not even this pandemic. And we've been through this before. Uh, the Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever. It's well known that people can linger long. And, and even though they've seemingly recovered, they don't feel quite right for many months. But the evidence that, that where people like that are followed up, it may take several months, but usually there is a recovery. It just don't expect it to be immediate. And also don't expect because you're not feeling back to normal at four or five months that you're never going to get back to normal because then the mind starts playing tricks on you. And you interpret every failure or problem as I must have this long-term condition. And that can really mess
0: with your motivation and your mood as well. And a final question then on on where you feel we are, Anthony, as a country in the United Kingdom with mental health services. I want to give out the Samaritan's number in case people who have been listening or watching are affected by anything we've talked about. I believe it's 116 one two three it's one one six one two three and there are various mental health helplines that people can reach out to for free i think samaritan's is available 24 seven whether or not you've got money there is help out there but how do you feel we are it's interesting there's a Saharan in the in the background how do you feel we are developing in our mental health services in this country though can we be pleased with where we are how much more work is there and how much room for optimism
1: Well, there's a lot of work to be done, but I think having this conversation about mental health is a tremendous advance and it's something that we probably wouldn't have been happening a few years ago. And, you know, we can be a little bit cynical, but when really famous people come out and talk about their mental health problems, I think that's actually really important. Yes. I've talked about the relationship between mental health and, you know, poverty, but anyone can succumb to a mental illness, even if they've apparently got everything. And being able to talk about that is a real change in our society. Our mental health services have been chronically underfunded, and the NHS itself has to get its priorities right. And we have to campaign for better, more culturally sensitive, but more intellectually sophisticated mental health services. But I I believe that uh, we're on the right track. The NHS is the place to deliver it, and we've just got to keep pushing.
0: Because we don't want to live in a twin-track society moving forward, never mind the distinction between those who've actually had the disease and those who haven't. There's also a, a, a possible and growing distinction between those who are too anxious properly to function in a pandemic or in an ongoing pandemic, and those who are much more relaxed?
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, I think our attitudes towards the rules and regulations is dividing our society, which is a real shame because it should be something that we we do together. But I think a lot of the work that's coming out, surveys of people in the community, whether or not they've had COVID or, or with and without. Some of these surveys are, doing, are going week on week, seeing how, what happens to people over time. And there was an enormous spike, to use the jargon, in anxiety and depression, right at the beginning of the lockdown. But that has come down, and it's very consistently coming down. So I think it, taking the population as a whole, we do adapt. We do habituate to these things. It's not that we're insensitive to them, but we will. We do adapt. Now, of course, right from the start, there were people who had mental health problems who are going to suffer more, and they have not shown that same ability to adapt. So we mustn't forget those people. We've had a bit of a taste of it, uh, some of us, and we shouldn't forget that not everyone's going to recover as much as we are but I think most
0: people will recover. That's the way the trends are going. It's been absolutely fascinating spending the evening with you, proving that we don't actually have to be socially distanced. We've got to know each other in the space of the last hour or so. We've never actually physically met. Thank you so much for your time. Your book is called Into the Abyss, a neuropsychiatrist's notes on troubled minds. It's out now. Thank you to everyone who's joined us as well. I really hope that this has been helpful. If you are struggling with your mental health, know that you're not alone. That is such an important thing to know. And please do speak to people, do reach out. Thank you very much to everyone involved. Please do also put up for future How To Academy events. We've got lots of them coming up throughout August and then into the fall or into the autumn, as we say in I've been Matt Stadlin, you have been Professor Anthony David, you've been a wonderful audience even though we can't see you or hear you. Thank you for your questions. Stay well and stay safe.
2: This week's guest was Anthony David. The presenter was Matthew Stadlin, the producer was me, Vas Christodoulou, and the editor was John Daugherty. This podcast began life as a live stream event and we are holding others just like it pretty much every weeknight for the rest of 2020. So if you enjoyed Matt and Anthony's conversation, head over to howtoacademy.com for the full programme. In the next few weeks, we'll be joined by John Cleese, Malcolm Gladwell, Ruby Wax, Elif Shafak and many others. And I hope we'll see you there. Thanks for listening.